I'm particularly pleased to be here tonight at this university for three reasons. Number one, it's my first visit here. You've got to write a book to come here, apparently, uh, as an outsider. Uh, since 1999, when it was not the University of Johannesburg, it was then called the Rans Afrikaanse Universiteit, and we were then in the middle of an election campaign. And I was then, as Chris mentioned, a leader of one of the political parties here. Happily tonight, since there are no shortage of politicians in this or any other world, I am a detribalized member of the clan of politicians <laughs> and political leaders. And the second reason I, I'm very pleased to be here tonight, after receiving your warm invitation, is perhaps to share with you a few things you might not have known or thought about the great Madiba who passed from us on the 5th of December last year, and more of that in a moment. And the third and final reason that I'm here is really to stimulate some discussion, because, uh, you know, when I was a politician, someone said to me that the... Uh, similarity between a political analyst and a politician was that as between a criminologist and a criminal. <laughs> so I'm a bit wary having sort of moved from one side of the fence to the other from having been a practicing politician to now, as you say, being a commentator and writer and perhaps analyst of some of these things, uh, having moved from the one side of the divide to the other. But I do know that uh, whatever your perspective, your views, your value system, that uh, we've got to move ourselves forward by interaction and debate, because that really is uh, how we uh, share our experiences and perhaps learn from them. Now, having given those disclaimers, let me say that my entire book is based on the views of my favourite philosopher, Alan, Woody Allen, that is, who once said that 80% of life is about showing up. Now, having been sometimes at the peak and more often not in the pit of national and parliamentary politics, it was my great fortune to have showed up as the leader of the Democratic Party precisely five days after Nelson Mandela was inaugurated as President of South Africa. But our relationship started quite some years before that. Now, I must now issue a health warning at this point, since my publisher, Jonathan Ball, is well represented here tonight. If I tell you everything in this book, you won't go and buy it. And if you don't go and buy it, you defeat the purpose of this evening. That is the real reason it sent me for events like this, in case you thought there was some other reason. That's, you know, the world is governed by commerce. The political economy depends on the economy first, as Karl Marx would have told you. But anyway... The short answer to the question, why another book on Mandela, is to read the book. The longer answer is, uh, alluded to by Chris in his introduction, is that it did occur to me, and more precisely to my publisher, Jonathan Ball, who published, commissioned this book, that of all the many and fascinating books on Mandela, the one he wrote himself, the one many written about him, the authorised biographies, the unauthorised biographies, the other studies, no one had written a book of Mandela in the full period of his political post-prison leadership from the perspective of the other side. In other words, what was it like to be an opponent of Mandela's? You know, what his secretary thought, what his jailer said, that was one thing. But when democracy first came to this country, and you were kind of quite uh, warmly embraced by Mandela, but you didn't come from the same political home or share the same political philosophy, 
What was that experience like and what could you learn from it and how did one adapt to that reality? Because I always said that I had uh, perhaps the most difficult job of all in the world back in 1994. And that was leading a political party in opposition to a government led by the sainted Mandela. Because, you know, whatever you think or don't think of the president of South Africa today, he was then standing on a very, very high peak when his name was Nelson Mandela. And actually, one of the points I make in this book is that for all we've lost in the post-Mandela period, we've also gained something. Because actually today our politics is more normal. In the sense you don't have this huge icon, who to quote one of Thabo Mbeki's favourite phrases, did not blind some among us to what our proper roles were for civic engagement under a democracy. Because when Mandela was president, it wasn't so easy to hold up the mirror, which Mandela invited the media and the press to hold up, because the person you're holding up to had this iconic status. Now, quite a lot of the time, Mandela deeply enjoyed the democratic discourse and the discussion and the punch and judy show that goes with parliamentary and other politics. But as I point out in this book, Mandela had certain blind spots, as we all do, which occluded his otherwise more hopeful vision of this country. And these two are fully recorded there, obviously, as I experience it. No doubt are many others as well that other people will write about or have indeed recorded already. And that was, to me, part of the fascination of the whole Nelson Mandela era of leadership in this country, was that someone on the one hand could be so embracing, so inclusive, and yet at certain defined moments could literally freeze you out if you crossed certain red lines as far as he was concerned. Now, that didn't happen to me very often. It happened sometimes, and some of those deeper engagements uh, are in this book. I was saying in our discussion which I had with Chris and others before I, I came here this evening, that, to me, the essence of Mandela as a politician and as a leader, apart from his extraordinary uh, example, what I used to call, or call in this book, the power of his example, more than the example of his power, was the way, actually, he held within him, as behoved someone who only died at 95 years old, and really started off life in the same year that the First World War ended. I mean, bearing in mind that the commencement of the First World War, its centenary was only last week, August the 4th, 1914. Mandela was born in 1918. And the thing about Mandela, which Richard Stengel, who ghost wrote his um, autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom, made about him, was something that I like to encourage people to think about. And that is that he, as Stengel said of Mandela, his persona is a mixture of African royalty and British aristocracy. He is a Victorian gentleman in a silk dashiki. And that is, to me, part of the contradiction. And one of the reasons that Mandela was such a profoundly successful political leader, and much else besides, wasn't that he tried to eliminate the one part of him in support of another, but somehow he embodied those extraordinary impulses and background themes that made up his long and well-lived life. So put it another way, in a shorter form, which I also quote in the book, there's a 
also a 90-plus-year-old British political statesman called Lord Dennis Healy, who said every politician should have hinterland. In other words, he or she should have a whole range of experiences and backgrounds before they become a political leader. So Mandela didn't arrive fully formed as the president of the ANC or the leader of Conte we sees with. He'd had a whole lot of defining life experiences long before his activism in politics began. And I elaborate on those, and that, I think, is the clue to the extraordinary emotional intelligence which he displayed so often and in such varied circumstances. If you compare the leadership bundle that he exhibited to the leadership of today, and this is not confined to the government, but also on the opposition side, you will find that most of the people who provide political leadership in this country have had no career outside of politics or trade unionism. So this hinterland, these background experiences, are simply absent. And I think one of the biggest deficiencies in our leadership, in our political world today, and look at who the Prime Minister of England is and what he did before. He was a political advisor to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Before that, he was a, briefly in the financial PR industry. The President of the United States had been a community organizer, then became a state center, and that was, however clever he is, that was more or less his life, expect his life experience before assuming the most powerful office in the world. And Vladimir Putin, we won't even go there, but uh, the point about it is that he had a very, very, an extraordinary background, and he brought that to bear in everything that he did as president. Now, I don't want to spend the evening telling you what you can read about, but I will leave you with three thoughts and tell you the story that Chris asked me to tell. The first thought is this. When I had published this book, and when we first launched it in May this year, I came across an extraordinary article in the Financial Times of London, which actually had nothing to do with this part of the world, but had to do with Russia. And one of their ace journalists, Philip Stevens, went to Moscow to try and divine why President Putin's doing what he does, you know, uh, annexing the Crimea, arming the secessionist rebels in the eastern Ukraine, and reducing the GDP of his country this year to zero percent. And in trying to explain why Putin was acting so aggressively, he was told by an old hand in Moscow, he said, look, the reason is when Putin is faced with a set of challenges, he goes back and does what he knows to do. In other words, be aggressive, be revanchist, go and stir up old nationalist enmities, and so forth. And if you're really going to be exceptional, you've got to start doing what you don't know what to do, to doing the unusual and the exceptional. And if I was, and that incident you can apply to the Gazas, Israel campaign that we are still seeing I'm continuing tonight, some more rockets were fired, no doubt more lives will be lost. And you can go around the world and see that in most instances we just go back to doing what we know to do. The point to me about the exceptionalism of the Mandela era was that he very often did what he didn't know to do or hadn't done before. And you can think of many of those acts. And what interested me if I was to, in my time limits here, 
to extract two of them, I'll tell you a specific story, and then I'll tell you a personal story. And they both go towards exhibiting that exceptionalism of people, person, a leader, who actually goes and does the unusual, the necessary, sometimes difficult things to do. And so, the first point, because you celebrate it, and I'm happy to say most of you were probably not around or conscious at the time, so you don't actually know how bad it was at times, was happened in South Africa in our election on the 27th of April 1994. Because we look at today as something tinged with the miracle and the wonders, the reality on that day, and I was leading the Democratic Party, then called in the province of the PWV, now more glamorously entitled Gauteng. Pretoria, Witwatersrand and Vereniging doesn't quite have the same sex appeal as Gauteng, since that was what the province was given an interim title. And bombs went off at the Johannesburg airport, then called Young Swats, and downtown Johannesburg, more bombs exploded. And, of course, we celebrate, correctly, 27 April as our Freedom Day. But on the day in question, our freedom did not seem assured at all. And one of the reasons for that lack of assurance was because the election itself was marred by a range of irregularities, not least the counting system, or breakdown of that system, which meant that we waited for days and days and days to know what the outcome of the election was at this very difficult and critical moment in the transition from a party <coughs> to democracy. And no big secret, you know, I always say a South African election result, whether it's national or African national, is actually reducible to Gary Lineker's brilliant observation of football. You know Gary Lineker's definition of football? Football is a very simple game. 22 men chase a ball for 90 minutes and Germany always wins. That's all. <laughs> Even against my country, Argentina, Germany always wins. Okay. So, you know, between 1948 and 1994, the National Party always wins. And since 1994, the African National Congress Party always wins. Okay, that's African election 101. But, no, everyone knew the outcome of the election, but the most critical province was my home province, what was then called Natal. Because that was where the outcome was most finely balanced, and Mandela himself even went to Natal at the grand age of 76 to cast his first ballot in 27 April 1994, because that was where the fighting had been fiercest. 20,000 people died in the province of Natal before 1994 in political violence, many interpretations of it, essentially fought out between the UDF, which was aligned to the ANC, and the Encarta uh, movement of Mangasuta Kutlezi. So Mandela went there to vote, and in Natal it was quite apparent that there were pirate voting stations, there were serious allegations of ballot box tampering, and the ANC was convinced that it was being robbed of a famous victory. So while we were waiting in this long, drawn-out process of counting, the ANC, in a circle, High Command, met in downtown Johannesburg at Shell House, now called Latuli House, to decide what to do, including a proposal from the comrades in Natal that the, they must call a press conference and denounce the entire election, because the ANC victory had been robbed by the IFP. There was one non-ANC, non-South African at that meeting called Stanley Greenberg. 
who subsequently wrote a book called Dispatches from the War Room. Interestingly enough, showing how politics evolves, 1994-1999, Mr. Greenberg, who was Bill Clinton's pollster, was the pollster for the ANC. In 2014, he became the pollster for the DA in Gauteng. Didn't help Mr. Maimari, but that's another story. Okay. As Greenberg records that meeting, everyone spoke. Mandela was silent throughout the meeting. And then he brought the room to a full stop. He said, we will say nothing that declares this election illegitimate. We will do and say nothing except to say this election is free and fair. Tell the comrades to call off the press conference. Prepare our people in Natal and the Western Cape to lose. That is an extraordinary moment for a powerful leader of a political party to tell his comrades, be prepared to lose. And Mandela did that over and over again during his presidency because he realized at certain crucial moments, attached as he was to the African National Congress, that there were moments and acts which were more crucial than the interests of the party and that sometimes you've got to put country ahead of party. And that story is retold in other areas in this book, including that one. So now, to conclude with the famous story. So, a few kilometers from here, well, I'll get to that in a moment, let me give you the background. So I'm this guy who leads an opposition party to the great Madiba's ANC, mighty juggernaut. We had seven seats in Parliament then, so they've grown a bit, the deer, they've got about 87. Probably got a better leader, anyway. Uh, well, I didn't take them from 7 to 57. She had the easy job of going from 57 to 87. That's all, that's all uh, history. But the thing is that, uh, you know, it wasn't so easy being the opposition to Mandela. And my personal regard for him is reflected in this book, I hope, was boundless. But we were on the other side of the political fence. And however warm and touching Mandela's embrace of me was, and I record it here, he got mightily irritated when I criticised his administration, which there were no shortage of things to criticise then or now. And so, one day, as we say in the classics, he really lost it, and turned round in Parliament and said, this DP, they're just a Mickey Mouse organisation. So, you know, well, we literally were, you know, Snow White on the six walls, not seven walls. So, and I was grumpy. Anyway, uh, so, I was stung by this criticism. I turned around and I said, well, if that is so, Mr. President, then you lead a goofy government. You can see how mature and Disney-esque the dialogue was back in 1998. Now, a few weeks after that encounter, I found myself very unhappily, just literally down the road here, at the Mill Park Hospital, about to undergo a coronary bypass graft operation. No, you know, get opened up like a spatchcock chicken, not so pleasant, but anyway, fortunately I wasn't awake at the time. And I was very nervous. My wife did say subsequently, you would at least prove to your opponents that you do have a heart. Um, but, anyway. So there I'm lying in the Mill Park in this private room, and 
There's a knock on the door at about five o'clock for the operation. This world-famous voice on the other side of the door says, Hello, Mickey Mouse. This is Goofy here. Can I come in and wish you well? And there was Mandela. Bright-eyed, smiling, shook my hand. And we exchanged a warm badge. And as you can see, since the 3rd of December 1998, that operation has been very successful. And I'm sure in no small measure it was speeded on by the extraordinary embrace of Nelson Mandela. And yet, you know, you could have these massive arguments and fights and disputes, uh, and that was also the man as well. And I try and illustrate that in the book. Now, I need to give you a caution at, right at the end, and let me quote from it. I was a very successful diplomat, as Chris will attest. I drove up the trade by 78% from... Uh, Argent, South Africa to Argentina. Tourism arrivals by 122%. Happily, we then had direct airlines, which were severed. As a, they made Mandela's daughter my successor, and just to make a field term, they cut the airlines between Buenos Aires and Johannesburg. And now, my greatest success was to encourage schoolboy rugby teams, huge rugby players, you know, if you watch what rugby, last Saturday at Loftus, this Saturday at Salta, between Argentina and South Africa. So we had this huge sports diplomacy, and then thoughtfully now, our Minister of Home Affairs has now made it mandatory for children to come with unabridged birth certificates. I don't think you'll be able to find one in Argentina. There'll be no more schoolboy rugby to us here with that rule. So I, I was very successful. But I was not very diplomatic. And so I had the world's most famous novelist from South Africa, who won the Nobel Prize, called J.M. Kutsia, arriving in Buenos Aires. And I was suggest taking him to lunch. And he's not the easiest guest. He was very nice to me, however. So I, if you've seen the movie, I hope you've read the book, not seen it. You're after all students. Read Disgraceful, The Lives of Animals. You will know one thing about James Kutzia, about being a brilliant writer, is that he is a very staunch vegetarian and animal rights activist. So I chose the most famous meat restaurant in Buenos Aires <laughs> to take him for lunch. But he forgave me for that fact. And we found a bowl of pasta. But the point about J.M. Kutsia is how he can sum up in one paragraph, in the most spare and extraordinary prose, the essence of a man or a situation. And I want to just conclude my remarks, and then obviously take your questions, to remind you of what Mandela was and what he represented. This is what he wrote about him after he died. He was, and by the time of his death, was universally held to be a great man. He may well be the last of the great men, as the concept of greatness retires into the historical shadows. Now, if that's, I think, profound but gloomy assessment is correct, the generation of great men is not going to come back anytime soon in the way that you experienced, sought, or glimpsed it with Mandela. So where does that leave us? And I conclude my book with a note of hope. We should look upon him and learn from him, even if we do not see his like again. So I think it is unlikely in our lifetimes that there will be another Mandela. But we can learn from some of those examples that he left behind and perhaps put some of them into practice. And that will be a living legacy of an extraordinary sort. Thank you very much. Chairman's uh, crossing.